The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. On many occasions in the Gospels, Jesus makes a comment of assessment about a person's faith. He makes a comment of assessment about a person's faith. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about us, about his disciples. And he says in chapter 6, verse 30, Why do we struggle with anxiety and worry when God clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven? Of how much more value are you to him? O you of little faith, makes a comment about our faith. In Matthew 8, Jesus marvels at the Roman centurion because he says no one in Israel had such faith. In Matthew 8:26, the disciples are afraid in the boat when the winds and the waves come, and Jesus said, "Why do you have such little faith?" In Matthew 9, we read about the four friends of the paralytic. Jesus commends their faith. There's the woman with the issue of, of blood. Jesus says to her, take heart, your faith has made you well. There's the two blind men in verse 29. Jesus says, according to your faith, be it done to you. In Matthew 14, verse 31, Peter is sinking into the water. And Jesus says, why did you doubt, O you of little faith? In chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus will speak to the disciples and say, why do you have little faith? In chapter 17, verse 20, when the disciples are not able to do what Jesus has commanded them to do, he says, it's because of your little faith. If you're keeping track, every time Jesus is talking to his disciples, he expresses their faith as little. Here in Matthew 15, verse 28, this is the only person in the gospel of Matthew Jesus will explain as having great faith. Everybody else has little faith or mediocre faith or he commends their faith in different words, but it is only of this woman that he says she has great faith. In fact, the two people in the Gospel of Matthew of whose faith Jesus commends the most highly, they are the Roman centurion and the Canaanite woman. They are Gentiles. They are the only people that Jesus says much of their faith. Now, there's two reasons you might check out already on the sermon. I'm going to try to keep you from checking out. One of them is you might think, well, I already know what I believe. I don't need a lesson on faith. But the Bible talks about faith in two standpoints. The first we might call objective faith, the content of what we believe, the propositions, the doctrine. Think of passages that say the most holy faith. Or when Paul says, I've kept the faith. Or Jude, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's the content of what we believe. The objective sense of faith. But there's another sense of faith in the Bible. It's the subjective or personal nature of faith. That's what actually this passage is about. In the Bible, we hear phrases like personal trust or acknowledgement, receiving, resting. Jesus will call it hungering, thirsting, yielding, or adhering to. These are all descriptions of faith. See, this woman that we're going to read about today in Matthew 15, she might know less doctrine than most of us in this room. But would Jesus assess us as having great faith? See, faith is more than just the propositions you know. Faith is also the posture you have towards the source of that truth. Now, one more objection that I'll take just a moment on. You could be listening this morning, 
wherever you are, and thinking, well, you know, faith is a religious thing, and I'm not a very religious person, so I don't think I need a lesson on faith. And I'd like to press to you this morning that actually faith is something that everyone exercises. Everyone, in fact, has things they trust in, rest in, rely on, or yield to. And as our culture becomes more secular, we don't have less faith. We just carry it out in new forms. Jeremy Treat has spoken on this recently, and he explained that, did did you know that one-third of Americans look to the stars via astrology for their own faith? They might say, I'm not religious, but they're actually very spiritual in their trust. He also shared something that I found very interesting. In the year 1990, in the United States of America, 8,000 Americans identified as Wiccans. In the year 19, uh, in the year 2001, there were 134,000. In the year 2014, there were a million. And today, as of 2021, there are 1.5 million Americans that identify as witches or Wiccans. To put that in perspective, there are more witches in the United States than mainline Presbyterians. So yes, uh, you might say, I'm not a particularly religious person, but actually, we've just found new forms to express our trust and reliance. Have you noticed how we do that even in our food? (laughs) We talk about taking a cleansing juice or we're going to drink something that's purifying, or we take whole 30 to feel whole, why are we using sacred terminology to describe food? Because we have the same longings. We're now just using different forms for them. Have you noticed that in exercise? You buy a soul cycle, not just to get in shape, but to improve your soul. You join CrossFit, not just for exercise, but for the community of mutuality and accountability. I read an article that Jeremy also read a couple of years ago in the Atlantic called The Church of CrossFit. It's a great article. And it really explains how now people are using new forms for actually the same functions of faith. You see, in our community today, we have a $4.2 trillion industry called health and wellness. You can get meditative apps. You can do yoga on the beach. You can find any sort of format to carry out the same longings that are trust, rest, or reliance. Now, in today's passage, we're going to see that the propositional truth that you believe in and the posture you have towards truth actually converge in a person. It's important for us to always be clear that as Christians, we don't hold ultimately to just a set of propositions. Our posture converges in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And in this morning's passage, Jesus is going to commend great faith because all of us actually do rest, rely on hunger, or thirst for something. But in this passage, we'll see four qualities of great faith. So let's look now in verse 21 as we walk through the passage together. Verse 21, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Where is he withdrawing from? And where is he going to? That's very important. He's withdrawing from Jewish territory and he's going to Gentile territory. And as one commentator wrote it very well, Jesus is withdrawing from Israel, not just geographically, but also ideologically. He's leaving where the people are because remember how he described their faith? Just a few verses up, look in the Bible, look up in verse four. God commanded, verse 5, but you say, verse 6, for for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites, verse 7. 
Now look at how Jesus describes their faith in verse 8 and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is now withdrawing from phony faith (laughs) and taking the truth out to Gentile territory. So looking again at verse 21, he's now going to Tyre and Sidon. Do you remember what Tyre and Sidon are? In Matthew 11, do you remember all the woes Jesus gives to Jewish towns? Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works that are being done to you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Tyre and Sidon were the ancient enemies of God's people. Isaiah prophesies against them in chapter 23, Ezekiel in 26, Amos chapter 1. You know, Matthew's going to do something really interesting in verse 22. Look ahead in verse 22. He's going to describe this woman as a Canaanite. But did you know in the first century, Canaan was no longer a normal term to use? It wasn't a place on the map. It'd be like calling New York, New Amsterdam. (laughs) Nobody knows it as that anymore. So why does Matthew call her a Canaanite? Mark calls her a Syrophoenician. Why does Matthew call her a Canaanite? Matthew's intentionally using the outdated terms of God's enemies to make this profound point. Those who were once God's enemies, Jesus is now going to. Pause with me and worship our God for a moment. We have a God who seeks and saves his enemies. When we as sinners never seek our God. If you're confused about that, remember the Garden of Eden. What do Adam and Eve do immediately after they sin? They flee from God. What does God do to those who have rebelled against him? He pursues them. Rejoice in Romans 5. It tells us that some of us might die for a righteous person. We might peradventure die for someone we love. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, the enemies of God, Christ died for us. We have such a wonderful God that he seeks and saves even his enemies. And so Jesus has chosen to go now into Gentile territory. So look now in verse 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman, old term for God's enemies, from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And if you have your bulletin, I'll now bring out four qualities that I observe that lead Jesus to commend this woman's great faith. And here's our first. Great faith rightly recognizes who I am, a sinner in need of mercy. Notice the first thing she says is, have mercy on me. Mercy is a request for God to do good for someone who does not deserve it. Someone who could not claim it. Someone to whom it is not warranted or entitled. In our culture, we, also, we often speak about entitlements or rights or even cry for fair treatment or justice. But we should be a little careful when we use those phrases. If we were to demand to receive what we deserve, what do we deserve? In uh, the Cold War, Russian spies were caught and they were brought before Judge Kaufman and I'll tell you the interchange he had. He was presiding over the trial of Russian spies named the Rosenbergs. They were charged and convicted of treason against the United States and sentenced to death. In his summation at the end of the long and bitter trial, the lawyer for these spies, the Rosenberg, said animatedly, your honor, what my clients ask for is justice. Judge Kaufman replied calmly, the court has given you what you ask for, justice. 
What you really want is mercy. But this court has no right to give it. When we demand to be given what we deserve, we should be careful because we do not deserve mercy or grace. The only thing we've earned is condemnation. This woman has enough humility to approach Jesus by first saying, have mercy. And I love that she writes, have mercy on me. You know why it's so interesting that she says, have mercy on me? Who's the one that's being afflicted by a demon? Her daughter. Why wouldn't she say, have mercy on my daughter? Because she is self-aware enough to know I can only approach God from a position of my own unworthiness. You see? Have mercy on me. I acknowledge my need. So let's note this this morning. One of the reasons we lack great faith is because we have a fuzzy view of who we truly are. You see, if we view ourselves as in control, worthy, capable, resourceful, then how could we have great faith until we realize that we're helpless, we're humbled, we're empty, and we're desperate? Do you remember in James when he says, you have not? You have not, why? Because you ask not. See, as long as you think you're resourceful and you're capable and you're worthy and you're good, you'll never ask. You'll never be humble enough to be merciful. James gives a second reason. You have not because you ask not. You also have not because you ask selfishly according to your own desires. This means that the enemy of great faith is pride. Pride causes me to think that I don't need to ask. Pride causes me to think that I don't need help. And that's why God resists the proud, but gives grace only to the humble. So number one, great faith rightly recognizes who I am, a sinner in need of mercy. But now number two, great faith rightly recognizes who Jesus is, Lord of lords and King of kings. Look again in verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Think about how many people in the Gospels approach Jesus as if he's essentially a peer. Good teacher, rabbi. Nicodemus approaches him that way. The rich young ruler approaches him that way. It's actually few that approach Jesus as the Lord and son of David. Now, it's true that in Greek, Lord can sometimes mean sir. It can sometimes just be a title. But the last time Lord was used in Matthew, it was used in chapter 14 when Jesus was walking on water. And right afterwards, the disciples said, Oh Lord, truly you are the son of God. When Lord is used with a messianic title, it's being used as deity. She is calling him God, Lord of Lords. And she's calling him son of David. Do you know what that's from? The Old Testament promise of the eternal king who will rule forever. And this woman is a Gentile. And she has put her finger on who Jesus really is better than nearly all of her contemporaries. See, great faith not only recognizes rightly who I am, great faith rightly recognizes who Jesus is. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. She comes to him because she realizes she has a problem that she has no ability to solve. Look at the end of verse 22. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Can you imagine how many times she looked at her own daughter and saw that her daughter's eyes were wild and not recognizing her? How many times she tried to restrain her daughter at night and her daughter was uncontrollable? How many times she wished to communicate with her daughter, but her daughter was unconsolable? See, the truth is we all have problems beyond our ability, but not all of us admit them and fewer of us take them to the right source. 
We all have problems beyond our ability, but not all of us admit them, and fewer of us take them to the right source. As a society, the reason we're resting in wellness routines, embracing vague spirituality, and trusting in self-care is because we've observed symptoms, but we haven't gone to the source of our problem. And as long as you don't go to the source of your problem, you won't go to the right object of your faith. But faith is only as good as its object. When my wife and I got married, we both, both brought a vehicle into the marriage. And she brought in this little tiny four-cylinder Honda Civic. And I have continued and will always hate that car. <laughs> that car was so small that I'd open the moonroof so I could sit up straight. <laughs> in the back quarter panel, we had silver duct tape holding the car together. <laughs> that four-cylinder, when I merged on traffic, I would push the, metal, the pedal all the way to the metal, all the way to the floor, push the gas, wait 10 seconds, and then it would <laughs> move forward. <laughs> I hated that car. But if I decided that I'm going to bring that car in the Indy 500, I'm going to bring that car into NASCAR, and I'm going to win the race. No matter how sincere my belief is, no matter how strongly I believe, no matter how genuine I am, I'm going to tremendously fail (laughs) because my faith's in the wrong object. See, faith is only as good as its object, and you never put faith in the right object until you recognize the true source of your problem. If you think it's only surface level, you'll go to surface problems, surface solutions, and you'll never have the true solution. This woman realizes she has a problem beyond her ability. Have you ever realized that? You have a problem beyond your ability to solve, and only one person can solve it. In this compressed picture, we see this woman go to the right source. But did you know that sometimes when you go to the right source, you still don't get the answer right away? Look in verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Can you imagine that? After everything you've endured, all the struggles you have, the humility with which you've approached God, the recognition that he has the ability, and then there is no immediate answer? Why would Jesus not immediately answer her? Because in love, he is nurturing that seed of faith so that it will develop. Does not James tell us in chapter 1, verse 3, that the trine of our faith produces perseverance and character? That's what we have in this compressed picture of this narrative. Now, he doesn't answer her, and as if that's bad enough, look at what his disciples do in verse 23. He did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, clearly within earshot of her, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. Some commentators try to soften this verse by saying, maybe the disciples meant answer her request quickly and then get her out of here. But there's no way that makes sense of the passage. This woman's come to God, hasn't heard an answer, and his closest followers are telling her to go away within earshot of her. That's why number three on our handout, great faith perseveres despite divine silence or human discouragement. Have you ever brought something to God and it seemed like he just didn't answer? Have you ever realized you need to go to the Lord, but everybody else was telling you to go another direction? Do you remember when blind Bartimaeus called out for Jesus? Imagine you're blind Bartimaeus. You've never seen, but you hear that Jesus is in town. And this is your chance. So you're crying out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And people around you are yelling, be quiet. 
Do you remember when the children came to Jesus and his disciples told them to get out of here? Remember the man with the withered hand in Matthew? And Jesus went to heal him and the Pharisees said, nah, no, no, we have some rules about what you're allowed to do on the Sabbath. (laughs) Can I tell you something this morning? Never let anyone keep you from going to Jesus. Never let anyone discourage you from going to the source that can solve your problem. There are always scoffers. There are always people trying to derail you. There are always people trying to tell you to be quiet and sit down. Never stop calling out to Jesus. Verse 23 is actually a chance for him to grow her seed of faith. So now verse 24. If it hasn't been grown enough yet, it's about to be tried by fire. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What an incredible thing to hear. Your daughter is demon-possessed. She's this little girl that you love, and now Jesus is saying he has a divine prerogative, and that purview doesn't have you in it, at least not as a first precedence. Jesus is simply saying what is the big picture of the Bible. Remember what the Magi said in Matthew 2? Where is the one who's born king of the Jews? God has sent his Messiah first to his people. That's all Jesus is saying. Remember, this is the first time Jesus has been on Gentile territory in his whole earthly ministry. He's done things for Gentiles, but they were always on Jewish ground. This is his first time on Gentile ground. But look at the faith in her response, verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. Lord, help me. And yet, her faith needs to be tried further. So verse 26. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's pretty strong, isn't it? (laughs) It's so strong that people wrestle with the Greek. One option is that dogs is a slang word used by Jews as a derogatory term about Gentiles. Another option is that this is the diminutive Greek word for pets or house dogs. Neither one really makes it a lot better, does it? The reality is Jesus is saying he has divine prerogative and he has his own precedence and he has the right to give mercy to whom he'll give mercy when he decides to give mercy to whom he'll give it. So the children get fed first. Still happens in my house, even when I'm hungry. (laughs) But now verse 27, her response is amazing. She said, yes, Lord. Notice, not a counterstroke, not an argument. Well, no, Lord. No, no. An agreement, an acquiescence. Yes, Lord, you're right. Yet even, what beautiful words those two are. Yet even, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Do you see what she's saying? You, Lord, are God. You have the right to determine how and when you will give what you will give. I know that you're sovereign and it is up to you, but I also know that you are merciful and good and that your goodness could spill over even on me. This is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who come to Jesus saying, I have no claim, I have no right, but I will take a crumb of your covenanted mercies are the ones who receive it. Now, number four on your handout. Great faith accepts God's sovereignty 
and yet pleads for God's grace. Great faith accepts God's sovereign prerogative and yet still pleads for God's grace. So now look in verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman. That's a strong statement the way the O is in there. It's a tender, emotional way to to speak to someone. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Something he has said to no one else in the Gospel of Matthew. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So number one, great faith recognizes who I am, a sinner in need of mercy, but rejoices that Jesus is merciful. Number two, great faith recognizes who Jesus is, Lord of lords and King of kings, because he is the Messiah. Number three, great faith perseveres despite divine silence or human discouragement. Number four, great faith accepts God's sovereignty, but also pleads for God's grace. Let me ask you some questions. Have you Acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of mercy. Or has your pride blinded you? Let me ask you, have you realized that Jesus is the sole solution? Or are you exercising faith in new forms? Let me also ask you, are you like the seed that initially sprouted out and then was taken away? Have you had an initial excitement? Oh, I'll come to God. I know he alone is the solution. But then when he didn't answer right away, you you gave up. Have you realized that Jesus is merciful and mighty? That he is the sovereign God who's independent and he can decide whatever he chooses to decide, but yet because he's good, I will continue to approach him and humbly ask of him. Last night as I was working over the sermon again, this helped me visually. If it helps you, may, may God use it in your life. The next time that I clasp my hands to pray, here's how I'm going to picture them. My one hand, I'm going to remember humility. I have no right to receive anything from God. And my other hand, I'm going to remember hope. And yet God is good. And when I put those hands together, I'm going to remember, Lord, let your will be done, not my will. Let your kingdom come, not my kingdom. But Lord, you are merciful and good and gracious. And to whom else can I go? So Lord, in humility and hope, I ask, will you help me? This woman has combined these two. You see, because Jesus is merciful... You can always call out to Jesus no matter how evil you believe you are or how bad you think you are or how tragically you think you failed. One of my favorite songs puts it this way. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Jesus is the Messiah. So do not try to solve the symptoms of your problems. Bring your problems to the great solution. Bring them to the mighty one. But bring them in humility and hope. So this morning, when you think of the court case that Judge Kaufman presided, when he said what you really want is mercy and this court has no right to give it, rejoice that God is willing to give it to us. Titus 3 tells us this, that we were foolish, disobedient, led astray. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works of righteousness we had done, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, we could never approach God demanding justice. We can only approach God pleading for mercy and praise God he is merciful. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. 
Justice is getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So let me give you four final applications if you're a note taker. Here's the first one. This morning, if you've never come to Christ, I want to encourage you to be saved today by receiving mercy. Peter says, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. How? Once you did not have mercy, now you have received mercy. And you receive it, Ephesians 2 says, because even though we were once dead in our sins, God, being rich in mercy, has sent his son Jesus, and we receive salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never called out on Jesus before, call on him today. Realize that he went to the cross so that God's justice and mercy could perfectly meet there at Calvary. See, at the cross, God was perfectly just and he punished sin. But at the cross, God was perfectly merciful and allowed those of us who don't deserve it to receive that salvation because Jesus earned it in our place. So receive it today by coming to the mighty and merciful Messiah. But now three applications for Christians. The first one was for those who haven't come to the Lord. But now, Christian, let me remind you some things about mercy. You need to keep praying for things even when you feel like there's divine silence or human discouragement. Do you know why you need to keep praying? Because you don't approach God on the basis of your monthly merit. You approach God on the basis of his infinite mercy. Remember Hebrews 4 verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help. Think of David after he sinned with Bathsheba. Sin tragically. How did he begin? Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Christian, keep praying. Keep approaching God. Not on the basis of your monthly merit, but on the basis of his infinite mercy. Christian, whether you're having a good week or a bad week, whether life is going well or terribly, be assured that God's mercies will renew every morning. We read in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Remember, Christian, that God is more committed to your salvation than you are. And the work that he's begun, he'll continue. Be assured that you are now a people who have received mercy. But then finally, let God's mercy motivate you to live a life of worship and obedience. After 11 chapters of Romans about God's completely undeserved and unmerited mercy, Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, on the basis of the mercy of God, present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, for that is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service. This woman had great faith because she had a great savior who is the author and finisher of her faith and ours. Let's go to him in prayer right now. Father God, thank you, Lord, that you are so merciful that you do not deal with us according to our transgressions, but you deal with us on the basis of your abundant mercy. Lord, and we understand maybe what David had to only know prophetically. That that mercy is made available because Jesus Christ would bear in his body 
the just punishment that we've actually earned. The wages of our sin is death, but Jesus tasted death so that we never have to, so that we could have eternal life. Perhaps someone this morning needs to, for the first time, receive God's mercy by praying something like this, Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner too, but have mercy on me, O son of David. And you will, because whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But as Christians, Lord, even as Christians, we can sometimes address our problems like secular people. All of us have burdens. We have things that overwhelm us. They discourage us. They frighten us. So what's our go-to thing in that moment? Maybe it's just a surface-level symptom alleviator. And then in that sense, we are missing the core solution that you've provided for us so richly in Christ Jesus. We have not because we ask not. And we fail to bring our great burdens to the great God who can do abundantly beyond what we ask or think on the basis of his mercy. And so I'm convicted this week because in Matthew, you keep telling the disciples how little their faith is based on all the revelation they have. And yet this Canaanite woman has great faith. God, work in us by your grace, great faith. Faith. Faith that is humble. Faith that goes to the right source. Faith that perseveres even when there's divine silence or human discouragement. Faith that submits to your will being done, but faith that never loses hope in what you can do. Give us that, Lord, for your glory and for our good. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.